Hello and welcome to the Being Well podcast. My name's Forrest Hansen. In our last episode, we completed our focus on the strength of gratitude, and today we're beginning our new focus on confidence, the sixth of the 12 strengths in our series. To grow this key inner strength, we'll start in this episode by grounding the topic in the evolution of the brain and the effects of secure and insecure attachment. Then, in later episodes, we'll cover how to feel more secure in the core of your being and stay on an even keel of emotional balance. We'll finish by exploring how to stand up to the inner critic and strengthen your sense of self-worth. Joining me, as always, is Dr. Rick Hansen. For me, I think that secure and insecure attachment is one of the pieces of content in the book Resilient and in your work generally that I've sort of empathized with the most. So to kind of frame the whole conversation, what makes somebody more or less confident? Yeah, I think of confidence uh, first in terms of healthy confidence and unhealthy confidence. Okay. And second, uh, confidence itself being comprised of two things. First, realistic expectations about how capable one is to deal with certain things. And second, the general feeling of work, self-worth. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, unhealthy confidence would be you know, a situation in which someone has a unrealistically ambitious or optimistic positive attitude about how well they can do something, like jump out of a building and fly before our hump hitting the ground. That would be problematic. Another kind of unhealthy confidence would be feeling that your worth is so great that you're somehow grandiose and you're entitled to really exploit other people. That would mm-hmm. be problematic. But in my experience, most people actually are more likely to have issues with uh, being less confident than they actually deserve to be, which creates lots of opportunities for the development over time of healthy self-confidence. Okay, so that makes sense. There's a natural spectrum of confidence. Different people land on different points on that spectrum. Mm -hmm. How does confidence kind of get baked into the brain, either genetically when we first pop on out into the world? or through the impact of our experiences over time? There are two main pathways. One comes from the outside in, in terms of how other people treat us, especially when we're vulnerable and young. If other people treat us with respect and with appropriate valuation of us and appreciation of us, well, then we naturally tend to build up um, that reasonable expectation that we'll be capable of coping, and also we tend to build up a reasonable, appropriate amount of self-worth. On the other hand, if people treat us by belittling us or dismissing us or neglecting us or just sending a message even implicitly that we just don't matter. Well, then very, very naturally, children and even adults will build up a smaller or lower sense of confidence than is appropriate. The other pathway is from the inside out, Mm -hmm. and it's one in which we ourselves independent of whether other people approve of us or not, Mm -hmm. or are impressed with us or not, or criticize or not, criticize us or not, we ourselves can observe directly our own capabilities, our own skillfulness, and our own learning curve, which is so much of the focus that we've had in these podcasts, the degree to which we can trust ourselves to actually learn from the experiences we're having Mm -hmm. and improve over time. So Um, And also, as a person observes themselves, they can see, uh, in terms of self-worth, not just capability functioning, but in terms of self-worth, they can see that they've got goodness inside themselves, they make sincere efforts, they have good intentions, uh, they have various capabilities, various 
things inside that they can offer to other people. And I really love the fact that there are two ways in. Uh, it respects the impact of relationships, very significant, especially for those people who are more toward the sensitive to others end of the normal range of different people. And it also means that no matter what's happened around us or what's happening around us today, we can still build up healthy confidence based on our internal relationship with ourselves. So effectively, we're developing this strength by learning from our experiences in different kinds of ways. We're either learning from the influences of other people, or we're trying to be internally directed. Exactly right. And yeah, you're learning, growing. We can grow greater confidence. And I think for a lot of people, they have pretty decent realistic confidence about Mm -hmm. um, how well they can function in life. Not always. Sometimes people are uh, overly shy or inhibited. They just don't or they're just playing really small in their life. They don't really get that they could take bigger chances or have higher ambitions. But on the whole, I think the greater issue for many people is a sense of low self-worth, nagging self-doubt. I know we're going to be talking about this in later episodes, an overactive inner critic with not enough of a sense of inner nurturance to stand up against it, of just nagging feelings of inadequacy. Certainly Mm -hmm. that was my own primary issue Mm. when I wandered into adulthood. Yeah, so what you're alluding to here when you talk about your own time growing up is kind of the impact of childhood experiences. What kind of occurs to me through all this is that particularly as a child, we're getting all of these influences from the people around us, right? Mm-hmm. We're being very kind of socially directed. Yeah. So why is it, maybe from an evolutionary standpoint or just based on the nature of our brains, that we kind of care so much about what other people think about us? And why does that such a big part of how we develop confidence? Isn't that a great question yeah. for us? It's kind of right under our yeah. noses, but we mm-hmm. rarely ask that question. Like, why do people care so much mm-hmm. about their reputation? Yeah, and sure. why, why is having someone bash your reputation, say, mm-hmm. unfairly on social media, why is that so hurtful? Mm-hmm. It's great, I think, to appreciate the fact that we're here today with brains that have been shaped by 600 million years of evolution. And it was really only in the last third of that period with the arising of mammals that really elaborate social lives developed. Our capabilities today and our tendencies today have been intensely shaped by what helped our ancestors to survive and pass on genes that passed on genes in the context of small hunter-gatherer man. And this speaks to what's called social brain theory, which is a really powerful idea. It's this notion that in an evolutionary spiral, as the brain got a little bigger, our ancestors starting around two and a half or so million years ago, when the brain brain, um, really, really took off in terms of its evolution, as the brain got a little bit bigger, our ancestors were a little more able to interact cooperatively with each other mm-hmm. in ways that would help their shared genes as a band to persist over time. And frankly, as the brain got a little bigger, those ancestors for whom that was true were just a little bit more able to compete, often mm-hmm. brutally, with other bands and thereby pass on more of their own genes. Well, as they passed on their genes Those genes became woven into DNA, which then would, in an evolutionary spiral, incline the brain to be just a little bit bigger, Mm -hmm. and on and on it went. And a major piece of that, actually, is the extension of 
the human childhood. We have the longest mm. childhoods of any species. And I think a fairly dramatic way to really appreciate the power of the social brain is to realize that the brain of an adult chimpanzee is about double the size of a newborn chimpanzee. Mm -hmm. The brain of an adult human is about four times the size of a newborn human. Mm. And for uh, that brain to quadruple in its size, yeah. that requires an extended childhood, which creates an extended period of dependency. The human baby mm. upon its mother, and through extension, her dependency upon her mate and others in her band. So in order to really capitalize on the capabilities that are available in a brain that's quadrupling in its size, you, you need the so-called village it takes to raise a child. You need this very rich network of mutually dependent people to keep that kid alive and keep its parents alive during an, ex an extended period of childhood. So netting it all out today, as our ancestors lived and evolved, it was extremely important to know uh, the capabilities and the, the nature uh, and the character of the other people in your band. Similarly, they really cared about your character mm -hmm. and capabilities and nature. So reputation really matters. It's natural to care about reputation. It's natural to have associated social emotions, they're called, mm -hmm. of embarrassment or shame or remorse or pride or uh, some of the emotions that get involved in very human gossip and mm -hmm. politics. Those are all very, very natural. Just because they're natural, of course, doesn't mean they're necessarily useful day to day mm -hmm. in the 21st century. We, we need to figure out how we're going to be with them and, and work with them. But to finish here, to me, it's great to appreciate the fundamental context mm -hmm. in hunter-gatherer survival mm -hmm. that is operating when people in junior high school are getting ready to for a dance. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's a really interesting framework to kind of think of it about as junior high kids or middle school kids kind of as like big monkeys. Yeah. It, I mean, if I had sort of had that perspective when I was growing up, it might have helped me kind of think about some of the experiences in my life oh, maybe man. a little bit me differently. Too. Me too. Yeah. So what you're describing is different really kinds of social supplies, right? As we're growing up, we get inputs from people around us where they say, you're basically a good person mm -hmm. or not, mm -hmm. you know? So we either have those resources or we don't. So what happens when somebody doesn't get those positive inputs? What happens when we don't necessarily get that nurturance that you were referring to from the, the broader caregiving band? We feel bad. <laughs> sure, we feel and, bad, yeah. And you know what's interesting for us, here, mm -hmm. this is really cool. Um, if you drop a brick on your foot, mm -hmm. certain circuits in the brain that are involved in physical pain mm -hmm. will light up, as mm -hmm. it were. Well, if you are unfairly criticized mm. or rejected, or manipulated in some kind of social science experiment in which the confederates of the researcher are making fun of you in the waiting room, mm. this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Guess what? The same circuits. In other words, social pain systems, and the opposite is true, or a similar thing is true for social pleasure system, like how we feel when we are um, appraised by other people, draws on the same neural circuits that are engaged when we eat a cookie to some extent. So we have social pain systems and social pleasure systems sitting on top of being basically built from uh, more ancient building blocks of physical pain and physical pleasure systems. Hmm. They so intertwine. Uh, flip it around, 
you can lower the experience of physical pain by feeling socially supported at the same time. And as a funny little detail, uh, if you give people, I think, Tylenol or aspirin or Advil, mm-hmm. some kind of mild yeah. over-the-counter analgesic, if you slip it to them rather than a placebo mm-hmm. and then expose them to social pain in a manipulation experiment, okay. in which let's say people will laugh at them mm-hmm. or they're playing a competitive game that's actually rigged and so they keep losing, right? If you give people aspirin before you expose them to that social insult, that social pain, they report less social pain. That's really interesting. So the systems are very closely linked. Yep, exactly right. That's I kind of joke that, you know, next time you go out on a blind date, you ought to take some aspirin before you go out to dinner, just in <laughs> case, right? Your mommy won't be so bad, but anyway. So I think that provides a really good framework for the primary topic of this episode, which is secure versus insecure attachment and how we can move into being more securely attached. So for anyone who has not heard those terms, which even for our audience, is probably the majority of people. Would you mind describing what these two terms mean? Yeah. Someone named John Bowlby, who studied animal behavior uh, in the first third or so of the last century, the 20th century, uh, did a lot of great research on how mammals form different kinds of relationships with their primary caregivers, mm-hmm. usually their mothers. Mm-hmm. And Bowlby uh, was the kind of guy who would different do different experiments, for example, with baby geese. And he uh, did the first, he did some important research about how little baby birds sometimes will quote unquote imprint on their caregiver yeah. and then forever after treat that being as their mother. And so Bulby would arrange for these little baby geese or goslings, I guess they're called, to imprint on him. And mm-hmm. they, they thought he was their mother and would then follow him around his mm-hmm. garden in his English countryside backyard. So that was the kind of background there. And then drawing on that, uh, the theory developed with regard to human attachment with researchers like Mary Ainsworth, Mary Main, and others since then, giving credit where credit is due. And the essential idea is that by 18 months old, most human kids, human children, infants, toddlers, can be reliably categorized into one of four groups in terms Mm. of attachment. The first group is so-called secure attachment. These are children who have not necessarily perfect relationships with their parents, but they feel secure with their parents, uh, as evidenced, for example, by the fact that they're willing to explore out into the world. And if you think about it, we need a secure base from which we can go out into the world. And you'll see this, for example, in playgrounds, where little kids, say two or three-year-olds who can walk around, they'll toddle away from their caregiver and then they'll look back over their shoulder. And if their mom or dad or whoever is there uh, sitting on the bench chatting with a friend is still watching them, then the kid will keep going because the kid will feel securely attached. Mm-hmm. But if the caregiver is just ignoring the child, the child will tend to move back to that base to reestablish that sense of secure attachment. So securely attached kids feel that their caregivers are reliable bases from which they can explore the world. Mm -hmm. They have children who are securely attached, have a kind of realistic expectations of repair, that if something goes wrong uh, and there's anger on either side, that, you know, the issue will be worked through relatively rapidly. Uh, They also have a very strong sense of existing inside the mind of their parent. And there's a lot of research on what promotes secure attachment on the part of parents, which includes things like emotional availability, attunement, 
so that there's a sense of empathy and a real tracking of what's going on with the child and sensitive and skillful responsiveness. And I'm deliberately using that kind of technical language immediately as a way to kind of think about our, your own relationship and the degree to which you feel that the people in your life are emotionally available, mm. that they are capable of attunement, of empathic attunement, really tuning in, and whether um, you matter to them such that they will respond to your needs and your issues in ways that are re- that are responsive and relevant mm-hmm. and also skillful. Mm-hmm. And turn it around, it's a good little checklist to oneself. You know, when I came across that hardcore attachment theory stuff, I was in grad school. You know, soon after that, you were born, Forrest. And honestly, I don't think I was a perfect parent, but reading that kind of material helped mm-hmm. me be, I think, a better parent yeah, than absolutely. I would otherwise have been. Okay, so that's secure attachment. And then mm-hmm. under the heading of insecure attachment, and I'll be a little quicker here, there are three major types, two in, there two in particular, most common, what's called insecure avoidant. These are uh, kids who act like everything's just fine, but inside their bodies, if their caregiver leaves the room, their heart starts racing, or uh, or there are other measures of stress. Uh, and then when the caregiver comes back, kid acts again, like, yeah, no big deal. But then too, you know, the body really activates. So there's a tendency with children who are avoidantly attached to um, keep their distance because it's through keeping their distance that they're able to sustain a relationship with a parent who perhaps is dismissive and distancing themselves or a parent who's maybe scary, maybe abusive, maybe emotionally volatile. And the child just learns that they need to kind of orbit the caregiver, the parent at a distance to remain in relationship with the planet that they're orbiting around, but far enough away to feel to feel safe and also not provoke the angry God of the parent who might punish them if they if the child was too demanding or needy or had um, or had a life of her own or his own in a way that felt you know stressful uh, and burdensome for the parent. Mm-hmm. So that's insecure avoidant, and um, that was more me. And then uh, there's insecure, it's different words for it, anxious, uh, anxious insecure. And these are children who tend to be clingy. Yeah. And yet, as they cl- and they cling because they don't trust the parent to stick around or the caregiver to stick around. So it's they they develop a strategy of clinging and often protesting or fussing or complaining mm. as a mode of relating. It's important to really realize that distance is a way to relate. Mm-hmm. It's not the end of relationship. It's a means to the end. It's a certain kind of means to the end of relationship. In the same way, anxious, clinging, reproaching, complaining, mm-hmm. even though it's not comfortable really for either person in that relationship, mm-hmm. it's a way to connect to other people. So those are the two primary forms of insecure mm-hmm. attachment. There's a fourth subtype. It's called disorganized. It typically has to do, and it's fairly uncommon, with children who really have been in really, really chaotic, terrible, awful, um, abusive situations uh, that are so shattering, in a sense, that the child isn't even able to form a coherent, insecure attachment strategy that's organized. They're they're disorganized and they're all over the place. And they kind of will 
vary in how they try to relate or they don't relate at all. And that's more disorganized. So that's where we start. But the good news is that uh, no matter where a person starts, with some effort and some skillfulness over time, they can establish a felt sense of being secure in their important relationships, including intimate ones, and they can, they can enable other people, including their own children, to form secure attachments with them. So to provide kind of a very quick summary of that, the major thing to track here, I think at least for me in terms of usefulness in my own life, is that difference between secure and insecure attachment, those two big categories. Yep. Then inside of insecure attachment, there's sort of two primary little categories and one third category that's a little bit off to the side from the other ones. The way that I tend to think about it, just again in terms of my own life, is about sort of tendencies in mm -hmm. relationship that you have with other people. Perfect. Yeah, if you're in relationship with somebody, do you have a tendency to be slightly pushing away? Mm -hmm. Do you have a tendency to be slightly pulling towards? Or do you have a tendency to feel basically comfortable at mm -hmm. the different levels of relationship? Yep. Well you know? said. Yeah, if somebody's a little closer than you would like, is that kind of more or less okay? Yep. Or is that not so much something that you want? If they're a little too far, same question. So that's like a good way to sort of structure ways of thinking about secure and insecure attachment. Fantastic summary. And also be clear for kids growing up, and it's true for adults too, um, you can be securely attached with your dad mm -hmm. and securely attached with your mom. Yeah, that's great. And point. vice versa. Yeah. And as an adult, um, there can be certain kinds of people that really stir up mm -hmm. patterns that you learned when you were one year old. Yeah. Uh, while with different kinds of people, you can operate in a much more sort of here and now, um, securely attached kind of way. Yeah. And to turn this into kind of a practical example, you might be in a relationship with somebody who you view as a real peer and a partner, mm. and you have a wonderfully secure relationship with that person, yeah. but then you go into work and you're in a power relationship with a boss or a subordinate relationship where there's somebody over you, yeah. under you that you're managing. Yeah. And all of a sudden that relationship becomes a bit more fraught. And these are all kind of characters in a way that exist in our lives. And we bring those character relationships with us as we kind of move through life. Yeah. There's a haunting title that became well-known mm -hmm. for a paper written by a researcher in attachment theory named Selma Freiberg, and it's called Ghosts in the Nursery. And what that title's about is how um, adults who are used to functioning in very securely attached kind of ways, when they have children themselves, often their old material is reactivated. Mm -hmm. The very familiar sights and sounds mm -hmm. of raising young children, the kind of rhythms of that life, the smells of raising a young child who hasn't yet been toilet trained and all the rest of that can stir up those ghosts in the nursery. Mm. And I think it's also quite haunting and accurate to think about ghosts in the boardroom. Sure, yeah. Ghosts in the singles bar. Mm -hmm. Stuff gets stirred up from these early, early experiences that are the absolute foundational floor of the psyche that can really be involved in people's lives today. Uh, going to what we said earlier about social brain, uh, I know, I've known a number of people who are embarrassed about this fact or mm. felt there was something wrong with them, that they were still haunted by these ghosts, these early childhood patterns. We're designed to be We're mm. designed to be affected by those early experiences. And then the question is, of course, once we move past uh, being embarrassed about them or fighting them inside ourselves, just on practical grounds, what can we do about it? 
Yeah, it's really been a reoccurring theme for us, where experiences that happen to you, particularly at a young age, really do carry a residue that moves with you through life. The sad subtext of this is that we really don't have a lot of control over what happens to us when we're a year old, two years old, three years old, but we carry that residue with us anyways. You're alluding to some relationships that maybe happened when we had some control. You're 18, it's your first job, something like that. You can make some choices. But when you're four and your mom does something or your dad does something, you're really Mm. just kind of stuck with it. Yeah. So let's say for people who might be listening, who kind of look back on their relationships, look back on their prior experiences, and they go, you know what? I do have a little bit of a tendency when somebody wants to move closer to me that I just kind of push them away a little bit. Or alternatively, when somebody goes a little bit further away from me than I want, I tend to kind of pull them back towards me. They have those those vestiges of insecure attachment. Yeah. What's something that they can do to become more securely attached in the here and now? Right. That's a great question. Um, I think there are probably two major pathways. One is to internalize today healthy attachment experiences, mm-hmm. including in relationships that are not enormously intimate or important like infant parent relationships are, mm-hmm. but are, they're still real. So today, uh, when uh, you feel that others are emotionally available, mm. they're actually ready to listen. They may not be your best friend. They may not want to have more than a five-minute interaction, but going into it, there's mm-hmm. an availability and an accessibility in that. Think about a child who's calling and calling and calling, knocking mm-hmm. on the door, if mm-hmm. you will, and nobody's coming. They're not there for me. That's one of the most horrible feelings ever to have. So today, when you have a chance to feel that others are emotionally available, notice it. And drawing on the skills that we've talked about many times already, once you start to have the experience that the, the other is reasonably receptive and actually present reasonably for you, reasonably attentive, you can actually call on them. They will reply. Then let yourself have that experience, which you internalize. Mm-hmm. Same thing with when you have a sense that others are tuned, that they're empathic. They're not just available, but they're actually empathizing with you. They're resonating with you. They're giving you a chance in Dan Siegel's phrase to feel felt right there. Take it in, slow it down, let it sink in. If you think about it, our attachment patterns are built from hundreds, probably tens of thousands of brief interactive moments mm. with caregivers, mm-hmm. both actual ones and ones in the imagination of the child. Mm. Um, and these typical interactive episodes are less than a dozen seconds long mm-hmm. before then there's a different kind of interactive episode in the life of a young child in which things tend to happen really quickly. And there are a lot of rapid shifts of gear. Well, just as those very brief episodes in early childhood gradually tilted us one way or another in our attachment patterning, today we can help ourselves tilt in a more positive direction, bit by bit, synapse by synapse, by taking in beneficial um, experiences of the sort I'm describing. And then, much as I said uh, earlier about skillful responsiveness, today, when the other person is behaviorally reasonable, they're nodding and smiling, they give you the correct change, uh, they Uh, repair the mismatch between the two of you. Maybe there was some misunderstanding. 
they respond in some useful, reasonable, appropriate way. There too. Take it in. Open to it. And I've just known so many people who are insecurely attached, they're actually afraid to open to authentic, beneficial experiences today because what that does is it opens up and it stirs up longing, understandable Mm -hmm. longings that are so young, 12 months old, 12 days old, inside the person that can seem overwhelming and alarming. But if you realize, you know, I can tolerate those longings that are arising, and in fact, I can satisfy uh, to some authentic degree, those longings that are arising here and now with this reasonably healthy, authentic, wholesome relationship with this other person, why not do that? So that's one major way, you know, gradually, bit by bit by bit, take in healthy social supplies today that maybe we're missing when you were young. Mm-hmm. The second major way in is really supported by a lot of research, and it's to develop what's called a coherent narrative about your childhood. Mm-hmm. In other words, an account that is realistic, even if it was really bad, an understanding of it that is emotionally uh, grounded, not just a merely intellectual understanding of your childhood, but that has appropriate emotion involved with it, and in which the pieces fit together. You can kind of make sense out of it. That is a major pathway for people into um, secure attachment relationships in adulthood. So one way into that is just to kind of think about your childhood. Uh, maybe talk about it with somebody else. Uh, in the book, Resilient, we, go, we have a number of kind of structured questions, but some basic ones were, just think about the first year of your life. What happened? And what is a very understandable collection of reactions to have had as an infant to what happened in the first year of your life? Mm-hmm. And why did that happen? Why were your parents that way? What was going on in their life? What kind of life did they have before they became parents? What was their relationship like? And then take it out year after year after year after year, often with other siblings showing up, uh, ups and downs in your parents' lives, maybe health issues, maybe they lost a parent, things are happening and so forth. And then then you landed in school and those other kids, and (laughs) you were pushed off the throne at that point. And then take it all the way out through junior high and high school and then into uh, early adulthood. That kind of um, autobiography, not that you have to write a 100-page manuscript about it, but a kind of taking, you know, normalizing of what happened. Events occurred around you. They landed in you in understandable ways. And here you are today. And kind of taking stock. Uh, No praise, no blame, just the fact. What happened and how did it affect you? Really understandably. Forming that kind of coherent narrative about your childhood, especially your early childhood, Mm -hmm. is a major uh, pathway into secure attachment Mm -hmm. um, as an adult. And that's because it helps you sort of reconcile the events of your childhood. It brings them to completion to the inner child inside of you. What's sort of the mechanism of that? You're actually getting at a great question for us. And Mm. many researchers never ask that question. Yeah, they just notice that people who often have had a super rocky childhood and yet as adults seem good in their relationships, able to manage a lot of different kind of people, Mm -hmm. wonderful parents. Uh, When you ask them, like, Whoa, how'd you do that? How'd you pull that one off? Yeah, you yeah. were raised in foster care. Mm-hmm. You were maybe abused, had some serious losses in your teens. Like, whoa, how'd you do this? And what you'll hear from them is an account of their life that includes the pain, but it's in the word coherent. It fits mm-hmm. together. The reactions are normal. For example, an indicator of not a coherent narrative 
is if somebody tells you something that's shocking, like they'll say something like, well, yeah, you know, I was 12 and my older brother died in a car accident. Um, and and they, they just have of, no emotional charge on it. Yeah. yeah. Uh-oh. Okay. Flag. That's a bad if you're sign. a therapist Great. listening to that, or you're an attachment researcher, or you're coding that interview later as a grad sure. student, like, row, yeah, <laughs> no big flag. Uh, but on the other hand, if they say something like, yeah, it was devastating. My whole family changed. My parents had no energy for me at all. My mom got really depressed. My dad started drinking more. And it was crazy. And I, I turned to, I got high a lot. And I, I then I got drawn into high school sports. And that was a way I found a new team and a new group of people. And mm-hmm. gradually, I started feeling better. Yeah, sort of a, a process of understanding of yeah, the events that happened. That, that, that makes sense, even mm-hmm. with all the pain mm-hmm. and the grief and the craziness along the way. This is supported by absolutely no research, to be clear, what I'm about to say. It's just kind of me musing for a second. But I think that part of that is about this kind of longing that we all have to understand like why things happened to us yeah. the way that they did. Did it happen to me because I wasn't nice enough to the people around me? What's wrong with me? And if there's a way to kind of move it from being about something was wrong with me and therefore bad things happened to me to more of an understanding of the external factors that might have created a negative circumstance, I think that can be a really powerful tool for, for people to kind of separate from it. and. Totally right. Yeah, create sort of a, a positive sort of optimal distance yeah. with the events where you recognize, yeah, it was horrible. And to be clear, a coherent narrative or mm-hmm. an understanding of what happened is not the same thing as justifying what Correct. happened. Yeah. Yeah. Or like minimizing can, it. Or totally. Anything, you yeah. can still be like, look, this was horrible. Yeah. And they were really bad to me. Yeah. I don't. I was cool. abused. Yeah, I was yeah. whatever. And it's not about permitting what happened. It's just about for the sake right now, today of your own mental health, creating a story that makes sense. Yeah, making sense out of it. Yeah, and creating something that you can understand where also it's not just about whether or not you were a sufficiently good person Mm -hmm. or whether or not you were a nice kid and you were a mean kid. So the kids made fun of you. And so it's all your fault at the end of the day. Like that's a lot to kind of carry around. So. Any way that you can kind of escape that paradigm, I think, is probably helpful for people. I know. And just to think about it for us, I've never thought of this. Hmm. It's like wisdom involves this funny combination of an utterly impersonal 30,000-foot view Mm -hmm. in which you just see the different players, including that player, that person who wore your name down. Mm -hmm. When you think back on your impact in the family and the way you were, that's been for me... Um, actually quite a poignant reflection lately. Uh, in my 60s, thinking back on things that happened when I was 5 and 10 and 15, and the ways in which I affected my parents, hmm. who then in turn affected me yeah. in ways that weren't so great. And it's not that it was my fault or that I'm letting them off the hook for how they could have been more skillful as parents and so forth, but it's it's a more detached view that kind of sees my own role in the matter. And I think that's a really interesting aspect of developing a coherent narrative, as long as someone can not fall into blaming the victim, quote unquote, you know, beating themselves up. So we have this funny combination of an utterly impersonal, detached view in the service of, and at some deep level motivated by, a deep, caring, passionate, sweet commitment to yourself Mm -hmm. to try to help yourself. And the combination of those two is really funny. Out of this deep sense of sweet caring for yourself, it's useful to pop out to 30,000 feet and take a look at everything that happened uh, impartially. 
So then as a final way to become more securely attached in adulthood, regardless of what may have happened as a child, one of the things that you mentioned in the book Resilient is being somebody that others can securely attach to. Sort of as you were mentioning, if you were somebody who is insecurely attached as a child, then you become a parent. All of a sudden, it's a new opportunity to kind of refresh those old experiences that get you know, lifted back into conscious awareness. It's really interesting. First, it's powerful to realize that a healing, a reparative, it's called, path for an adult who is, let's say, insecurely attached or was insecurely attached as a kid, and even today, especially in high-stakes relationships, mm. it's easy to be securely attached to the mailman, pretty sure. much, right? <laughs> or let's say someone you have a pretty peripheral relationship with. Yeah. But if it's a high-stakes relationship, especially if it's at all uh, reminiscent of early childhood, mm. like mm -hmm. an intimate uh, partner relationship, or, or when you start raising children yourself, it's beautiful to appreciate that a reparative healing path, if you've been insecurely attached yourself, is to be someone that your children or your partner or your close friends and intimates can attach to. By being someone who is emotionally available, able to attune, and who is skillfully responsive to others, not necessarily perfectly so, but good enough for other people given the stakes on the table in the particular relationships, if you are like that yourself, it's fantastic. It gradually heals something inside you, including uh, old feelings of not being worth attaching to, let's say. That's part one. Part two, just on pure moral grounds or benevolence grounds, it's useful to be someone that others can attach to. And yeah. third, it's enlightened self-interest. Mm -hmm. Because if you're someone that others can securely attach to, that they can trust, that you're a reliable partner, because that's what secure fundamentally means at bottom, then you're going to have better relationships with other people and they're going to treat you better over time. And so for me, a couple things that really stand out. One is to be highly trustworthy. Mm -hmm. You make an agreement, don't be casual about it. I know a lot of people that keep their word at work and don't keep their word at home, mm -hmm. even though they would be the first to tell you that the stakes at home are a lot really, and matter much more to them. So really thinking about reliability and um, if uh, fulfilling the expectations that others reasonably have of you. If there's an understanding, being someone that um, is attentive to that mutual understanding and doesn't keep it, uh, doesn't treat it casually. One, trustworthiness, reliability. Second, repair. Relationships are constantly messing up, fraying, there's a misunderstanding. But if you're someone that others can absolutely count on to repair in reasonable ways, then that's a way to help others have a secure relationship with you. Third, don't give others cause to fear you needlessly. Mm -hmm. I think there's so many ways in which, sometimes even inadvertently, depending on social factors such as authority or mm -hmm. privilege, uh, expertise even, uh, that we can step into different situations in ways that are read by others not uh, unreasonably as threatening or alarming or uh, re understandably provocative of a certain uneasiness in other people. So I think paying attention to the ways in which others uh, can feel alarmed or uneasy or threatened and not walking on eggshells uh, or pulling your punches as appropriate, but instead paying real attention to them 
and not being scary when you don't need to be scary. Uh, I think that's uh, a real key. And then fourth, related to that, to finish, being really, really careful about anger. Anger mm. is one of the themes we keep exploring in these podcasts. I think it's so interesting. Um, anger is the most socially salient emotion or signal, really. You can look at primate bands or you can look at humans and it's anger uh, or related state communications of disgust, mm. including being disgusted at other people that are really salient. And most of my interpersonal mistakes began with my anger. Mm -hmm. If I look back, my mistakes as a father, a husband, a friend, a teacher, they started with anger. And um, so it's natural to be anger, angry. It is important to find ways to work with anger authentically in relationship. That said, being really, really careful about anger is a key to helping others remain securely attached with you. I think that those are some great ways to establish a more secure base of attachment to other people and to become more securely attached as an adult, if that was something that maybe you struggled with as a child. That was a lot of material that we covered today. Yeah. <laughs> to do a little bit of a recap of it, we started with the social brain and social brain theory, the evolution of the brain over time, um, particularly in small hunter-gatherer bands, and why it matters to us when other people have an opinion about us yeah. or when other people give us a social input that isn't exactly what we would like them to do. We kind of segued from that into the big conversation about secure and insecure attachment, these being the two big models of relationship that people have with the other people in their life, particularly the other people who matter. There are two big buckets inside of insecure attachment. There's this breakdown of three kind of smaller ways to insecurely attach to others, but just as a general principle, thinking about it in terms of, am I comfortable in my important relationships when somebody is at distance to me? And am I comfortable in my important relationships when someone is in proximity to me? If you're comfortable in both of those states with most of the important people in your life, you're probably good to go. But realistically, most of us are at least a little bit insecurely attached. If not in our personal lives, then in our work lives or in some other element of our relationships with others. Many of these things come in when we're children. We don't have a lot of control over them most of the time, so we took a look for a while at ways you can build secure attachment into adulthood. These three ways were taking in experiences related where we feel securely attached to other people, developing a coherent narrative about our childhood experiences, and then finally becoming somebody ourselves that people can securely attach to. If you are enjoying the podcast, we'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. It really does help other people who might be interested in this material find the podcast. We also hope that you'll join us again next week when we're going to be talking about the first and second dart. Summarized as how to not suffer any more than you need to. There you go. So until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs>